Welcome to the Rebel Justice Podcast. This week, we're honored to speak with Malu Halasa, the editor and curator of the book, Woman, Life, Freedom, a collective cry for justice in the pages of the anthology about Gina Massa Amini's death at the hands of Iran's morality police on the 16th of September, 2022, which ignited a firestorm of protests that reverberated not only across Iran, but across the world. Women from all walks of life took to the streets, shedding their headscarves and boldly proclaiming Zan Zindagi Azadi in Persian or Jin Jian Azadi in Kurdish. Translation, Woman, Life, Freedom. Halasa's anthology is a raw and unapologetic exploration of the extraordinary bravery exhibited by Iranian women in the face of oppressive laws and the relentless efforts to silence them. The anthology takes readers on a journey behind the scenes of forbidden fashion shows where women negotiate the risk of expressing their individuality. I mean, this mixed medium presentation of the creativity throughout the protests also was reflected in the fact that the revolution is about all ethnicities, all generations all genders, as you said, queering of the revolution as well. And it's not just this idea of an Iranian woman, young woman, it's actually all of these multiple. It is multiple. And also just going back to a point about the past was that the book is an anthology that definitely gives insight into the protests that were happening and are still going on now. However, for the reader, I felt to understand what was happening in front of us now, we really had to have context of Iranian women's lives. Absolutely. Like, how did women's lives change when the country became an Islamic Republic in 1979? Mm-hmm. And there were two articles that we included, Henga Megolostan's photographs, iconic black and white photographs of mass women's demonstrations against compulsory uh, veiling that happened weeks after the Iranian Republic, weeks after Khomeini came into power, Mm. because these were women who had fought for the revolution. And, you know, the revolution, the 1979 revolution had been very bloody. A lot of people died. It was horrible. Women had really fought in the front line for for that revolution, for that change in their country. And what happened was that within a month, They lost their rights, Mm. their rights to divorce, uh, freedoms that they had been given under the Shah for family law. They were kind of pushed back into the house. I mean, Hengame uh, tells a very interesting story. She wanted to cover the Iran-Iraq war, and she went to one of the ministries to get a permit so she could travel down and cover the war. And the ministry official denied her the the permit. And he said, better to go home, better to use your time at home making jam and pickles for the men at the front. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt like that really showed how women had been really pushed back. Mm -hmm. And another statistic that we don't have in the book, but what I've learned since is that 1979, 3% of the women of Iran were college educated. By 2017, like nearly 70% have gone to university. Wow. So you're talking about women who are highly educated Mm -hmm. and they've done well. They've gone to university. And what are they expected to do? Stay at home? Mm. Because educating women and young women is still an important priority in Iran. It's definitely an important priority. And one of the essays that we have in the book tells the story of three generations of Iranian women. Mm. 
and of a mother who was married when she was 13, had her daughter when she was 15. She was second wife in a traditional Islamic marriage. And the first wife, the sons, were going to high school. And she wanted her daughter to go to high school. But at that time, where they were living, there were no schools for young women for high school. So the girl had to go to Tehran if she was going to go to high school. Mm. And the father said, my daughter can't live outside the family. And the second wife, the girl's mother said, I will go with her to Tehran. Mm. I will live with her so she can go to high school. And then they went to Tehran and the mother realized that there were so many high schools for girls in Tehran that it wasn't like whether a girl should go to high school. It was which high school should she go to. Mm. And it turned out that her daughter ended up working at the University of Tehran and for, uh, for the, the World Health Organization. Mm. And so the essay is being written by the first daughter who's grown up and become a mother and had children. And it's one of her daughters that are writing, remembering the lessons that has come down during the generations. So education has been very important. That was a really beautiful essay. I remember hearing those three, well, through the perspective of one generation, but the three voices was really powerful and how things have changed. I also wanted to speak more about Hengeme Kolistan's work as Mm -hmm. well. And also because you you spoke about the power of photojournalism. Uh, You've spoken about also the power of rap and conscious sort of protest and speaking more about the past and how the creative mediums in women life freedom protests have maybe changed or compared to the past movements of the Green Movement, the 1979 revolutions, like how is it different? It's interesting. I think you can really see it in photojournalism particularly, because during the 1979 Islamic Revolution, people were taking photographs, but there was a ban on all press in the country. And that the only way that they could see their photo, what was going on in the country was that there were some photographers that were already working for Time magazine or for Newsweek. Mm. And that Newsweek and Time, I think it was Time that was publishing photographs. And you could buy that issue of Time magazine in the mm. international hotels, but you couldn't find any other locally produced media or newspapers or magazines that were mm. published inside the country because there was a ban on any sort of news. So what happened was that in the 1979 revolution, people would put their photographs of what was going on on the city walls. And in Tehran, people would go out and look at the photographs to understand what was happening. Also, there was a man, Hengeme Golestan told me about a man who has been documented in other uh, photographs. He would walk around town pinned with photographs that had been taken of, I'm afraid to say this, corpses on the street Mm. so that people could see what was actually going on. That was in 1979. It's a walking billboard. A walking Mm. billboard. Mm. That was in 1979. And then in 2009, the Green Movement, you had a whole generation of young photojournalists on the street documenting those demonstrations. That was digital, wasn't it? Because 1979 was still analog. Analog. It was still analog, but those photographs were being printed. They were being published in the newspapers. There was a reform press inside the country. And also they were being sent abroad and being published. The regime was really upset about that. 
And um, Nisha Tavakulian, who's a Magnum photographer, talks about the last day that she was a photojournalist. It was during the Green Movement, mm. where she was taking a picture of demonstrators, and a man turned and he put his face, his hand in front of his face, to, so that he, she, that that his identity would not be seen by the regime. Yeah. And that's when she realized that photojournalism, I'm sure that she already knew that photojournalism inside Iran was dangerous. But she said that was her last day. But also, at the same time, the regime was targeting photojournalists. A friend of mine tells a story that the authorities came to his house, knocked on the door, and they showed him a pile of photographs. And they said, oh, can you tell us who took these photographs? We want to know the names of the photographers. And as my friend was going through them, he realized that he had taken some of those pictures. Mm. And he said to the authorities, no, I, I don't know, I don't know. And they said, oh, okay, well, you know, think about it. We'll contact you again. And they went away. And then maybe like a few nights later, at 3 a.m. in the morning, he gets, receives a phone call. And it's the authority saying, ah, have you thought about it? And do you know who took those photographs? And my friend packed a bag and left the country immediately. Yeah. So during the, the 2009 movement, a whole generation, because, because Trans Tehran is just filled, uh, the book that I done with Mazia Bahari is just filled with incredible photojournalism. Mm. On the cover, we have these Iranian women police. Mm. They're like abseiling down a building. Like it's just, it's just like mad. There's... It, also had a essay by Nusha Tavakolian about Maria, a trans um, truck driver. So photojournalism was really, really a very important, on one hand, social activity, like documenting life inside the Islamic Republic was very important mm. at that time. And a lot of people did it. But after the targeting of journalists and photojournalists, a whole generation went into the artist studio. And they still make very, the artwork that's being made is quite critical of the regime or looking into the corners where maybe the regime would not like them to look, mm. but they're not on the streets taking photographs. And, and I think that was really seen in, you know, fast forwarding until now, but to this time now, that really shows that for woman life freedom, it was really social media. Yeah. And it was the it was the videos. Mm. The videos have been very important, you know, Instagram, Twitter, all of that. I was gonna move into that as well to talk more about the role of social media and tech activism, how important that has been, especially to counteract the digital surveillance of the state. And I loved also there was um a great let me see if I find it here. Alexander Cyrus Pauli Oh, <laughs> he wrote, unity of places has become possible temporarily without unity of time and physical space. And he wrote this in relation to the graffiti in the city shared through the digital realm. And I thought that was a wonderful way of the sh seeing how it's shifted the revolution to this kind of unbounded exploration <laughs> of of protest and resistance to set the to disseminate the message. Definitely they're disseminating the message and that's been going on on the streets in through graffiti, word of mouth, through all of that song. 
but also I think definitely through social media, because without that, I think that's what really alerted the world. And the world being alerted also gave the revolution power. Mm. Like it, it sustained it, it kept it going, just like the artwork, it sustained it and kept it going. Yeah. But the technology, it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, you have like incredible surveillance of the people. You know, the, the government peers into cars. You know, the government peers into not just everyone's lives, but into what they're looking on at the, on the internet. So you have all that going on. And then you have these tech activists, whether they're here or here in the West or they're in Iran, and they're trying to, you know, figure out a, a workaround. So they said, um, Ashley Bellinger writes about the technical the tech in um, Iran and wrote that, you know, or one of one of the people that she interviewed said that when when the Internet goes down, people are killed because mm. the world is no longer watching. So it's important to have the tech activism to try to keep ahead of, of the incredible surveillance that's going on. And we could talk more about as well the importance, because there is an essay of more on the tech activism, especially on the decriminalization of VPNs. I mean, maybe you could speak more about the importance of VPNs in Iran, because I did not know anything about this until I read it in your anthology. And I thought it was very fascinating, actually. Well, VPNs are a way that they can have access to the internet. But some of the VPNs that, that they buy and have access through are government-owned, mm. government-promoted, and maybe even the hand of the government is hidden so as people are using the VPNs to get to the internet, all their data, what they're looking at is also reported to the government. Mm. So they have to be really careful about what VPNs are used. And, you know, when I can't remember if it was Telegram or Instagram, it was one of the apps went down, then the government put up its own version of that app. And when people used that, then whatever they were looking at went to the government and the government knew. Because what, uh, as I read in the in that essay, they were talking about how they would create apps that looked um, just like yeah, just like the real under the app, radar, under and, the radar, yeah. yeah. But actually, everything was being monitored. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that really showed as well the tactics and strategies behind government surveillance. So, but even it, it's interesting those tactics. It, uh, Kiabon Tribune, the socialist. A socialist youth group that documents graffiti in Tehran for a, a while there. They were documenting, there was a lot of graffiti of women who had been shot and killed during the protest, that their faces would go up. And the um, collective was, you know, going out on the streets photographing this. And there was one face that they realized that wasn't of someone who had been killed during the protests. Mm. It was a dummy face that the government had put up. And that was that meant that they had to like think again. Like they had to make sure that they were actually so it's interesting. It's not just in 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 tech. Mm. It's even on the streets in terms of graffiti. The government's quite wily. Yeah. So throughout the Women Life Freedom anthology there is a lot of people repeat the phrase, or it's heard even throughout Iran, nobody is going back to the way it was. Yes. And 
this being repeated, I wanted to ask you after completing the anthology, what does the way forward look like to you? I don't know, as the editor of the anthology, like people ask my opinion, right, of things. And I have to defer to the contributors. Mm. And I think that I have to con- uh, defer to the anonymous contributor who closes the book as uh, the anonymous contributor, the same one, opened the book, that the, that contributor feels there might not be regime change anytime soon. And that might sound depressing and upsetting to many people. However, that contributor or that writer does believe that something seismic has changed and that people before woman life freedom, they didn't dream that change could happen. Now they believe that some change can happen, but whether it will happen soon mm. is another conundrum altogether. Yeah. And that maybe when you're fighting an enemy as difficult as this one, one has to manage expectations so that you can handle the long fight. Mm. And also remember the Iranians already had a revolution. Mm. They already upended their society. Many people were killed. They're not really willing to do that again. So I think that it's a slow, this is a slow burn. But I think even though the, the regime is difficult to deal with and dangerous to deal with, because I was talking to another friend of mine in Tehran, like especially after these new laws came in, you know, it was so demoralizing mm. and so upsetting. And I was told a story where on the my friend's building has a lot of cafes at the bottom. And the authorities went into the cafes and ta- said to the owners, you cannot serve women who are hijabless. You, you have to turn them away. Mm. And they the initially, and initially the people said, "Well, that's you're asking us to do your job. Mm-hmm. We're not going to monitor. We're not going to yeah. police society. Self monitor. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah. we're not going to do that. Yeah. But then their cafes would be shut down, or or some other thing would happen to them, or their family. That's another thing that goes on is that for the the young women who have been really active, their families are targeted. They're mm-hmm. targeted. Some of them are killed." I don't know if you were following the death of Amita Garavan, the 16-year-old student who there was a, a, a film footage release on social media where she walks into a, a train, a metro, um, a, a train on the uh, Tehran metro. And then the next thing you see is that her friends are carrying her body out. The footage from the platform was released, but not the footage inside the train. Okay. And there was allegedly from from reports was that there was an exchange between these schoolgirls. She was sixteen. She mm. was a schoolgirl with a, a woman morality police, and they were telling the they were telling Amita that she had to wear a hijab. And uh, the schoolgirl said, "Well, we're, we don't tell you what to wear, so mm. why are you telling us?" And they hit her with a big stick. And so she was carried out on the platform. She was in a military, she was sent to a military hospital. She's in a coma. They say she might be brain dead. Her family were not allowed to go see her. The authorities went to the school and told the pupils and the teachers don't talk about her. 
So you get this a censorship. Censorship, but also yeah. this like really heavy situation yeah. where they're trying to control everything. So what can people do? It's that bad. And that's what I was sort of asking my friend. And my friend in Tehran said, the young will figure out a way. And I think that's the, the optimistic note. I think that's a wonderful note to end on. And for anyone who's listening, would you like to suggest some places to get that information or to keep updated on Iran? I Instagram. think that, yeah, Instagram's good. Twitter's probably good. I really do believe Iran Wire is the best source because Iran Wire isn't just a news service. It has a, a very, very deep commitment to human rights. Mm. So all of their, their investigative pieces, all their research goes to human rights reports, which I think is really important. Mm. Also, there's another, you know, because uh, Gina Masa Amini, she comes from a Kurdish family. Yeah. It was the Kurds that have been, that have really been in the forefront of woman life freedom. And there is a Kurdish news agency called Harana, H-R-A-N-A. And they are actually very much on it. And a lot of the news is reported in the West. Harana is breaking that news. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to even go even deeper to that source. They have a Kurdish, their website is in Kurdish, but also in English. So I think that that's, you know. A wonderful resource. Thank you so much. My name is Celeste and I'm the host for this episode of the Rebel Justice Podcast. Thank you so much, Malul Halasa, for being our guest here. I hope you all uh, take out a taste about for the anthology and go out and buy a copy. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Celeste. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you to Malu, and thank you to you for listening to Malu's extraordinary personal journey and how she's gathered together the stories of women across Iran to commemorate and celebrate the life of a young Iranian woman whose bravery is tattooed on all of our hearts. Check out our social media post with Malu's selection of artists and pros to find out more. Support The View by liking us on social media, subscribing to our quarterly magazine on our website, theviewmag.org.uk, and donating, sharing, and being part of our growing community wherever and however you can. Thank you. Thank you.